Happy Magical Monday, Milkers. Welcome back to another episode. The beer this week is called Count Shocula. This is produced by the good people at Green Room Brewing of Jacksonville, Florida. A unique variation of their original, original milk stout, this brew reminds me of a candy bar in liquid form. It has an ABV of 6.2% and the Comcast rating of 3.75 out of 5 stars. As always, please drink responsibly, and if you enjoyed the podcast and the content, please consider leaving a rating and review on whatever platform you're listening on. If you want to support us in other ways, feel free to check out our merch store at thecomcast.com, all one word. Love you guys so much. Welcome back. Let's get in to the next reading of the Gospel of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Let's go. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Comcast. As always, I am your fucking amazing, glorious, gracious host, Ryan. And joining me, as always, is Cody. We are going to go ahead and get right into the motherfucking episode, the flying spaghetti, uh, the reading of the Gospel of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, part three. Part three. We left on the re, and we're starting back fresh and new, so yeah. yeah. And we're going to start off right now, bright and early, with a good old trigger warning. And there's more. Just so you know, I'm reading this book word for word, and I'm not leaving anything out because this is a book reading. It is not my rendition. I am mm -hmm. not coming up with any of these words, phrases, or sayings, or philosophies. The scientific word for reading it verbatim, Yep, as the, the smart people say. Yep, correct. So, throwing the trigger warning out there, if you don't want to listen to it, skip over it. Those who are interested, please wait and listen. Yeah. Now go. Let's go ahead and get off. Uh, get back on the train where we left off with WWAPD. What would a pirate do? Mm-hmm. Hey, Amen. In these trying times, where the world keeps shrinking and the trappings of modern society—cell phones, computers, PDAs, video games, taxes, war, pornography, and microwavable dinners—are crowding in around us. Oftentimes, a person feels lost. Where do we fit in this modern world? What's our purpose on Earth? Many are mirrored in eternal confusion, swept against the shoals of too many choices. Maybe you feel this way right now. If so, don't lose your faith. Instead, close your eyes and think back to a simpler time, when the choices were fewer, when life passes long days under the benevolent sun, and a man knew where he stood, even if it was on a peg leg. If life has got you down, simply ask yourself, what would a pirate do? Asking this question will no doubt lead you along a path that starts at a local inn where the first answer awaits you. Honestly, in today's world, he would uh, be in a lawsuit with his wife for $100 million. Yeah. Yeah. The and uh, I'm on Johnny Depp's side, just yeah. an FYI, because he's a good guy. He yeah. may be a cokehead, but he's a good guy. 
Yep. Yeah, I uh, I've watched I've watched some clips, and I'm definitely on the side of the pirates. Last time I talked to you, you didn't even know what it was. No, I know it. I know it. I've watched some of the clips on like TikTok and Instagram and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and I am on the side of the pirate. Damn it, I'm on Crybaby's side. That's right. Number one, a pirate would drink some grog. If grog isn't the bread of life. It's certainly what you need to keep that bread from catching in your gullet. Grog opens the mind and frees the soul. It also frees the inhibitions to be mindful in your search that you don't obtain grog goggles. Too much grog can make your question can make for questionable bunkmates, and if you're wearing any eye patch, you're already a couple of cards behind in the game. Once the mind has been appropriately lubricated, you may find that it wanders. This is good, for a wandering mind is a searching mind. And yet, if the mind strays too far, you may find yourself asking the wrong questions, or even turning forfeit, even turning forgetful, which leads to... Number two, a pirate would obtain... A Was there a pause in between there? Yeah. Okay. All right, all right, all right. Yeah, it was supposed to do that. Number two. I'm getting good at this. No, you're not. I should read for Audible. (laughs) You're terrible. Number two. A pirate would obtain a parrot. Parrots are renowned across the seas for repeating or parroting Mm. the words of humans. A.K.A. shitty birds. When a pirate can't recall what he's just said, he can always just wait a second or two for the parrot to repeat his words. For example, Ark, me hook is caught in me booty, in me Bonnie's blouse. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> a good parent. Ark, <laughs> who touched me button? <laughs> me hook, me hook is caught in me urethra. Wow, scissor me timbers. A good parrot is essential to a happy and prosperous life. Good parrot's a dead parrot. (laughs) (laughs) But parrots are about as scarce as pirates these days. In a pinch, you can substitute a computer, PDA, or even a diary to do your parroting for ye. But computers, PDAs, diaries, and parrots are no substitute for true bonhomie. And drinking alone, even with a parrot perched on your shoulder, is not the pirate way. This brings us to step three. Number three. Find ye a band of marauders. All the greats had a merry band of marauders to assist them. Toothless, unshaven, and smelly. Seek for yourself a group of similar ilk. They will lift you up when you are down. And when you are whipped up into a bloodlust, you will find that they ground you. Blackbeard speaks of a time when he was at his most vulnerable. He looked back on his beach to see only one set of foot and peg leg prints. It was then that this that his first mate, Old Longshanks, had carried him along the shore. Words to live by. Once you have found your grog, your parrot, and your band of marauders, you are ready to act like a true pirate. And what does a pirate want most? He wants a Bitches. pirate. He wants a pirate ship. Number four. If you can't steal one, build your ship. 
Bilge yar ship. A pirate just isn't a pirate if he doesn't own a seaworthy vessel. You may have an eye patch, you may even have a parrot and a peg leg, but the true goal of a pirate worth his weight in doubloons is to gain a means of traveling the seven seas. A ship gives you true meaning. It provides transport and opens the world to ye. Without one, you're just a guy in a funny outfit. Yar, hop on me Uber. (laughs) (laughs) Yar got a parrot in that lift. Ye last man only got one case of the herpes. Four stars only, please. Mm -hmm. Yar. 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 Okay, then the name of the ep- the title. Ye here. have your masks on. The title. The, the, <laughs> the, the title of the episode is Yar. Or Yarp. Yarp. Ye have your masks. Ye must be tested negative to join me, crew. Ye smart for not grog and driving. <laughs> we may be scary pirates, but COVID is scarier. Rawr. So now ye have the trappings of a real pirate. What are ye going to do with them? Number five. Find thee a wench. You just gotta find shit. Yeah. When do you stop? When do you actually become a full flo- a, full-fledged a, pirate? There's a few more steps here. You need a, a, a fucking parrot. You don't need a fucking parrot, okay? Not every Apparently pirate can have a parrot. You do. Not every pirate can afford a parrot, okay? Those, uh, if you get a parrot, that is a 60-year commitment. It is. And you have to keep your house to a smoldering 78 degrees. Mm. All year round. That is a, that's what I mean. It's a shitty animal to get. Because they're always there. They never die. They live longer than you do. And then they're, you gotta give them to somebody. They're always fucking there, dude. Nobody wants to accept a shitty bird from a dead family member. Mm. No. Because then they're always fucking assholes and they bite you and shit. Yeah. Nobody's like, oh, he's still got 20 years left in him. Well, fucking shoot him and get it over with. Yeah. Yeah. Shoot <laughs> Yeah. Yar. <laughs> Yar. <laughs> Yar, blow his brains out. God, Johnny Depp needs to read this. <clears throat> Five. Find thee a wench. Or sorry. <clears throat> find thee a wench. Well, it's got that, an exclamation point. Was, Johnny Depp's on. Well, first thing you got to do is find ye a wench. Yeah. Grog. Grog. Yar. Yar. He said yar. Or if you're a wench. Uh, sorry. Or if you're a wench, find thee a pirate. AKA a wench is just a hoe. So. And side note. Female pirates should find themselves a stout male pirate. Wenches and pirates go together like spaghetti and spaghetti sauce. Side note, do so do same-sex pirates who are perfectly acceptable in pirate culture. Gotta put that in there, don't you? Now hit the seas and take what's coming to ye. I wonder how he feels about transgender pirates. <laughs> probably, probably okay. Yar, once you're inducted, yar be right with us. Yar be right with us. Yar be right with us. <laughs> the journey is a long one, and the voyage can sometimes be monotonous. Long hours. I don't think that's right. Monotonous, yeah. Monotonous. Long hours spent with the same merry band, consuming the same grog and gruel for months on end, bunking with the same wench, 
There's only one way to avoid pirate melees. Melees. Melees? Mayonnaise. I don't know. <laughs> Melee. Melees. That's what it is. Melees. Could have made this book a little bit easier to read. I love how it's just like, you got a book with the same wins the whole time. Yeah. <clears throat> Number six. When in doubt, plunder. The only way to avoid inaction is to take action. Examine your heart, your charts, and locate a sleepy fishing village. Then plunder it. Find a town inhabited by wealthy no- noblemen and plunder them. These days, it's too easy to sit back and find excuses. If you want to see what's out there, go see it. Then plunder, plunder, plunder. Or jack an ATM. I'm just kidding. I'm not telling anybody to commit a crime. He is. Yeah, I mean, he's saying plunder. He's not saying anything about committing a crime. He's just saying plunder. Means if you want something, take it. With these basic pirate principles, you should be able to live out your days in happiness and prosperity. Follow them at all times, remembering their importance most when you're lost and in the doldrums. And if by chance you find that you still can't put wind into your sails, remember this last point. Number seven. Arg. To accept the pirate life is to accept the eternal arg. Without it, you're just another landlubber. <clears throat> Next, <clears throat> chapter. <laughs> Next chapter. <laughs> the Holy Noodle. How are we from pirates to the Holy Noodle? We're about to get into the um, the days of creation right now. Honestly, that's probably the part that I'm most excited for. <clears throat> the days of creation. The Holy Noodle. The first meatball hit the ground. And then the second meatball hit the ground. And then the noodle hit the ground. And there, lo and behold, he was created. The meatball man. (laughs) Flying spaghetti monster, they called him. And then he touched people with his noodly appendage. All the time. And brought them into the skies. And (sighs) fed them. Yeah. Okay. The first day. Light. Then the FSM said, let there be light. And there was light. And the FSM adjusted his willowy eye stalks and saw that the light was good. And the FSM divided the light from the darkness. He called the light day. And the darkness he called night. Or prime time. You stole it from the Bible. And it's (laughs) prime time. So the evening and the morning were the first day. That's so dumb. The second day. So you're telling me he's like, let there be light. And then he's like, this looks good. This is some good lighting right here. Okay, we're going to stop here. Are we in the red zone? It's not too dim. It's not too bright. This is perfect right here. It's prime time. <laughs> it's prime time. There's two things I love in life. Red zone red zone hour and prime rib. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> the second day. The firmament. <laughs> the firmament. 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 Mm. The FSM was tired of flying and he couldn't tread water for very long. So he said, let there be firmament in the midst of the waters and let the firmament form coves to one day provide safe harbor for pirates. No, wait, firmament is a stupid word. Let it be called land. Since, (laughs) Since firmament ho sounds even stupider than just plain firmament. And let, and let this land divide the waters from the waters. And let there be a volcano to spew forth beer, which seems like a benevolent idea. 
And the volcano spewed forth beer and he tasted it and declared it to be quite good. So the evening and the morning were the second day. So he is thy holy flying spaghetti monster, but he gets tired of flying and he can't float. So no. he created land because so he could rest. No, for his, his weary balls. We can tell a firmament hoe. <laughs> no, I'm not. <clears throat> The third day, land and vegetation. When the FSM awoke, his thoughts were muddled and he didn't know where he was. Slightly hungover and somewhere out in the Indian Ocean. The FSM found himself a little confused about what he created the day before. And so, self-conscious about the previous night's misbehavior, he started barking godlike orders to an in an attempt to reestablish his powerfulness. And then the FSM decided to organize. He said, Let the water under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. Having forgotten about day two's firmament command, and he called the dry land earth. Having only yesterday come up with the term land, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. And the FSM dried his noodly appendages under the hot light, and he saw it was, a, it was good, but that there was a little problem. For now, he had an earth full of land and firmament, which wouldn't do. So he lifted day two's firmament up to the heavens and renamed it heaven. The land from day three, he left where it was. Heaven seemed like the sweeter pad, and the FSM decided he'd live there and commute to earth. Then the FSM said, let the earth bring forth grass, semolina, rice, and whatever else can be turned into food that resembles my noodly appendages. Basil and oregano. <laughs> <laughs> the, the FSM's two favorite spices. Pecorino Romano for life. Garlic. <laughs> and he, saw, he was like, let there be earth. And then he's like, all right. But I don't like it here. Let's just castle in the sky it. <laughs> and he's like, I'm going to live up here and you can stay down here. He's like, I'll give you some more space. Yeah. Fucking idiot. And he saw this was an original idea, which was... No, it was not. <laughs> which was certainly good. <laughs> that night, he drank a little less from the beer volcano, which was relocated to heaven. Where the fuck did that come from? He built it yesterday. <laughs> you don't remember that part? <laughs> That's why he was hungover. Which, we, which, he was, which was relocated to heaven along with the rest of the firmament. So the so the evening had the morning. So the evening. So he and took all the good the shit. Day. Yeah, he took all the good. You shit. You gotta make it heaven, bro. You can't make another one. Make another one, goddammit. The fourth day, the sun, the moon, the stars. At this point, there was already light. Why the fuck? Where the where did the light come from? Where did the light come from? Where the fuck the light come from? That little incandescent bulb. There's the, there's three days of light, but no little, fucking sun. That little that little lonely incandescent bulb in a creepy fucking his fucking nightlight beside his bed in a creepy apartment kitchen. Yeah, that one <laughs> fucking swinging bulb. Yeah, that's what it was. There's light, but he's like, oh, sun, continuous light. Ooh, <laughs> fucking idiot. Three days of light, but no sun. God damn it. At this point, the FSM was a little sore from overexertion. It was difficult for him to find a comfortable resting position during the night. Which you have was, a whole earth. 
<laughs> in the sky. Find the spot, you fucking noodly bitch. You have a beer volcano. Sleep under it. Which was darker than squid ink pasta oh, would eventually God. be. So he said, let there be lights in the heavens and let there be two lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser to rule the night. And since he had big plans for the next day, he turned in early. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So he created the, the morning and the evening. Yeah. The fifth day. The Big Bang. The fifth day was going to be huge. So the FSM rose early. Then he said, let the waters abound. Let the skies fill with birds. Let the earth bring forth creatures, each according to its kind. Then let them canoodle and be fruitful. And he saw that it was good. And he was feeling pretty proud of himself. So he hit the beer volcano hard that afternoon. Later that evening, he rolled out of bed and landed hard on the firmament. And this, fair reader, was the true Big Bang. He had a funny feeling and realized in his drunken stupor that he had not only built a factory in heaven that turned out scandedly clad women in transparent high heels, but he'd also created a midget on earth whom he called man. And he said, wow, even, I'm, even I might have overreacted by noodly appendage on this one and not even sure what day it was and, and wait, wait. And not even sure what day it was anymore, he decided to take an extended break from the whole creation gig. And he gave a quick blessing and declared, from here on out, every Friday is a holiday. And then he dipped out for a little while. He was drunk half the time. Yeah. And he made a hooker factory. He's proud of himself. <laughs> he made a fucker. A fucker. <laughs> he made a fucker factory. He made a fucker. <laughs> Um, he made a hooker factory by falling out of his bed onto the firmament. Fine, spaghetti monster. Fuck bitches, get money, drink beer. Basically, human, humankind was a dingleberry that fell off of his junk when he fell out of his bed drunk. <clears throat> yeah. Excuse you. Gosh. He did it on accident. I know we're reading a crazy book, but rude. Shut up. <clears throat> <laughs> Next chapter, the Olive Garden of Eden. That midget, however, unlimited breadsticks. Yeah, oh, is that Fazoli's? Uh, Both. None of them have unlimited breadsticks anymore. It's horse malarkey. That midget, however, was a goddamn noisy. Or what was goddamn noisy? The FSM couldn't deal with all the complaining down on Earth, so the Lord FSM commanded the midget, saying, "Here's an idea." Why don't you collect the semolina, rice, and what have you, and make pasta in my image? That's what it's there for. And fill your mouth with it, and be quiet and peaceful. But be careful with the olive tree, for the olive itself is good, but the pit inside is rock hard, and you could choke on it or break a tooth. So you should consider it as evil. If you choke on it, too, if you, choke on it you shall surely die. Which would mean I wasted a hell of a lot of time on you, although I'm already having second thoughts. Man wasn't excited about eating pasta seven nights a week, so the FSM broke down and brought him all the animals. And man renamed each of each as a food group. Cattle he called beef, pigs he called pork, ham or bacon. Strangely, man stuck with chicken for chicken. 
Perhaps man was tired at this point and had lost his sense of creativity. The FSM suggested that man take a nap, so he did. When he awoke, the FSM said, Man, have I got a surprise for you. Check this out. Woman. The midget stared blankly for a moment, then said, Why does he keep saying midget? I don't know. Can I keep her? And the FSM said, From now on, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and then they shall become one flesh. And then the FSM thought to himself, This should be interesting. I yeah, owe incest. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> I owe you one, said the midget man. Let's make these two bitches fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking idiot. Before long, man broke his damn tooth on that olive pit, and the FSM said, what did I give you ears for if not to listen to me? And the man said, I have ears. And he eventually located them on the sides of his head, but not before discovering a small noodly appendage between his legs, which he noticed was in- infinitely smaller than even the shortest of the FSM's appendages. And he realized that his woman appeared to be thinking the same thing. So the midget man said, hand me one of those fig leaves, will you? The fuck? Later, the woman suggested that man didn't need such a big fig leaf, and she hinted that there might certainly be another man somewhere on Earth, maybe Eden had a gardener somewhere, and the midget man looked her up and down and said, One word, honey, cellulite. What the fuck? (laughs) So stupid. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the FSM floating around the Olive Garden, and they hid what and the said... What the fuck did it sound like? <laughs> <laughs> Just fucking noodles flopping. <laughs> they heard him... <laughs> they heard him floating. <laughs> they heard him floating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like that fucking radiation toad off of uh, Futurama. <laughs> Hypnotoad? Yeah. Hypnotoad, that's what it is. <clears throat> And uh, they heard the they heard the FSM floating around the Olive Garden. They they hid and said, "What are you doing here?" The FSM said, "Where are you?" Man said, "I heard you floating around over there, and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself." And the FSM said, "That's fine, but can you tell me where you hid those delicious breadsticks? I haven't eaten since the creation. We ate them all." The midget man lied. There aren't any more breadsticks left. <laughs> <laughs> this is getting this is this is the turning point in the book when it just gets absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, like it's half, about halfway through. We're on page seventy. You got any more than breadsticks? No. We about ate them all. about page seventy is where it gets a little squirrely. Nope, we ate them all. He we he knew he was lying. <laughs> Where's that Parmesan spinner thing? Get <laughs> what is it? Get, Check out the Pepe, whatever the fuck that. Oh, coach, coach on the Pepe. Gotta get this coach on the Pepe. I saw one TikTok today. Somebody reenacted that, <laughs> except he was just like doing shit and saying different ones. He was like, he's like, I'm taking a shit that day, and he was sitting on the toilet, <laughs> and he did a bunch of other ones. It was so funny. Next chapter: the flood. Then the FSM saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth and that every thought of the little midget was ruled by his stomach. 
Then the FSM said, fine, I'll just cook for myself. And he produced a great colander of goodness. And he did, col- and he did collect water in an enormous pot, which he heated. And he did drop in a heaping portion of pasta and slowly simmer the sauce for so long that the original humans weren't even around anymore when he was finally ready to eat. And he poured the spaghetti and water into the colander of goodness, careful to make sure that the water went down the drain of the sink. And he was eating. He vacantly considered where the drain did empty. And and the FSM said, uh-oh. <clears throat> Luckily, Noah and Noah's sons, ham, cheese, and omel, and Noah's wife... Ham, cheese, and omel. And Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them had been working on big Noah's floating uh, menagerie. <laughs> when, when was to be... Uh, which was to be housed in a giant ark of Noah's design. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep were uh, broken up and the drains of the heavens were opened, and the rain was on the earth forty days and forty nights, and the ark did float, but it did stink. After several battles with pirates, the ark did finally rest on Mount Ararat, Ararat, and when the waters receded, it was a long walk home for Noah and his family, and no one could locate the unicorn pair. But they did discover Noah's son Ham in a black chamber of the ark, picking his teeth with an oversized toothpick that remarkably resembled a horn. So his pasta water caused the flood. The great flood. The great flood. That's so dumb. In his heavenly sink. And he is a pile of spaghetti and meatballs, and he's eating spaghetti and meatballs. How's he supposed to stay strong? He's not supposed to. All this work, man, you need your carbs. Regular God don't eat. You don't know that. Yeah, I fucking do. Okay. <laughs> Regular God don't eat. You don't know that. You don't need that shit. You don't know that. I mean, I don't know that. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> exactly. I'm pretty sure none of it's You real. literally just said, yes, I do. I do. I do. God loves meatloaf. <laughs> I'm pretty sure none of it's real. But, um... I don't know really what to say. Leave it up to interpretation. Back to the book. The Tower of Scrabble. Like Noah, his sons were real entrepreneurs. And they did spread out. Ham went to the southern nations and started the Hamites. Of course Cheese went to the central nation and started the Cheez-Its. And Amel journeyed northward to start the omelets. There, they did establish family diners to supply the locals with foodstuffs. Hmm. Ham. I hop Denny's and fucking Waffle House. Waffle House. <laughs> Ham, who was a bit of a troublemaker and always looking to squeeze out a few extra shekels, determined to develop a foodstuff that could be produced from the leftover pig snouts and sawdust that did normally just get thrown in the garbage at the diner. He ground up his waist. Um, he ground up this waste and did call it Scrapple. Thus, b- baloney. <laughs> yeah, and Scrapple's like a real fucking food. And he did enlist the help of Nimrod to help market the Scrapple. Needless to say, it wasn't a fast seller, and the Scrapple did pile up out behind the diner sitting under the sun until it formed a sort of wrenched tower. 
Since they couldn't sell it for food, Nimrod suggested they call it the Tower of Scrapple and charge a fancy sum for passerby to come behold the majesty. A fool is born every minute, he said to Ham, and Ham agreed. Shortly thereafter, the FSM started noticing a bad smell around the firmament. He floated down and declared, That thing, I mean this quite literally, stinks to high heaven. What do you think you're doing? Thinking fast on his feet, Nimrod said, We built it as a tribute to your greatness. But the FSM wasn't buying it. I thought I told you to be fruitful and fill the earth, he said to Nimrod, and not with flies, with people. Nimrod didn't have a response to that, so the FSM told him, just tear it down. Since the Tower of Scrapple wasn't the tourist, uh, wasn't the tourist draw he'd hoped for, Nimrod bowed, bowed to the FSM, FSM's wishes. Unfortunately, he inhaled too much rancid Scrapple fumes in the process, and he had rendered a and he was rendered a babbling idiot. Mosey, where are we going with this? It's the story, bro. Oh God, Mosey, just power through it, people. And the diners did prosper, and the population feasted and grew in number until there was so many short order cooks that Phil, the night manager, did fear a revolt in his authority. The night manager. And he ordered that no more short order cooks be hired, but one young boy named Mosey, who couldn't sit still and he was always running his mouth, did talk his way into a job by claiming to be able to cook the best papyrus on rye, papyrus, I don't know what the fuck that is, on rye this side of the Euphrates. Mosey did indeed cook a mean papyrus. Pap, pap? Papyrus? I don't fucking know. And he was an artist with the deep fryer, but he did grow tired of long hours and mistreatment. The one day he walked into his manager's office, threw down his apron and said, I'm tired of the nine to five. I'm quitting to become a pirate. That got the FSM's attention. And he kept careful track of Mosey in the fact... In fact, years later, the FSM, who had grown tired of Phil's mistreatment of the short order cooks and was getting to be in a generally bad mood, found Mosey camping out in the desert, drawing up plans for a massive pirate ship. And the FSM spoke to Mosey through a burnt roasted marshmallow and commanded Mosey to go back and lead It's all Moses. The- it's Mosey. Moses. It's Mosey. Yeah, in God's story, it's Moses. Okay, well, FSM story. A burnt flaming marshmallow. Yeah, he talked to him. Go and go back and lead all the short order cooks. They had cooks. marshmallows back then? <laughs> I guess. Lead all the short order cooks from under Phil's control. The FSM bade Mosey to hire the cooks and start a restaurant of his own. Preferably one that specialized in food more like his liking. Pasta. Maybe call it the <laughs> Olive Garden. Fuck you me. can manage the kitchen staff, said the FSM. But when Mosey returned to the diner, Phil refused to release the short order cooks. Last paycheck... If they followed Mosey. Now the FSM was really angry with Phil and he punished him with the following plagues. A rain of spaghetti sauce. A hail of linguine. Repetitively playing Kid Kid Ambicianas rap hit. The Makita Daddy? I'm the Makita Daddy? I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is either. Should we look it up? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you should look at it. I'm the Makita Daddy inside Phil's head. Phil relented and the FSM commanded the short order cooks 
to celebrate the yearly Passover, where the angel hair pasta of death passes over all the houses that have a smear of sauce on the doorpost. Now the FSM spoke to Moses, saying, This mouth shall be the beginning or sorry, this month shall be the beginning of your new restaurant franchise. It shall be the first month of the rest of your life. Speak to all the short order cooks, saying, Begin your sauce on the tenth day of the month. Every man shall prepare a sauce, stirring it occasionally. If you don't have enough people to eat it, go over to your in-law's house. Now you shall cook the sauce until the fourteenth day of the same month, and you shall take some of the sauce and smear it on your doorpost. Then you shall pour the remainder of the sauce over a heaping bowl of pasta of your choosing, and you shall eat all of it. With a, with a belt at your waist, a patch over your eye, and a cutlass in your hand, you shall eat the pasta. For you are no longer short order cooks, but the sauce on your door will mark you as pirates. Though Phil had reluctantly agreed to release the last paychecks as soon as Mosey led the short order cooks out the diner, he changed his mind. Phil chased after them all the way to a giant red puddle of spaghetti sauce that had been left over from the first plague. The FSM parted the red puddle for Mosey, but he didn't notice that, that Phil was hot on his heels. Unfortunately, Phil was swallowed up by the puddle and rolled into a giant meatball. Mosey became Pirate Mosey, and later dried pasta fell from the skies like manna, which is which is Hebrew for monster. Who sang that song? Um, Kid Ambicinias. Ambicinias. I'm the Makita Daddy. Makita M A K K E D A. Unless this is just some made up shit. No. Which it might possibly be. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh shit. What? <laughs> what would I'm the McKee to Daddy sound like? So in the Gospel of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, it talks about a man named Phil um, who's the head group of a short order cook. So is it fake? <laughs> yeah. One of those groups, short order cooks, one of those uh, cooks was Mosey, who had mistreatment, long hours of work, so he decided to become a pirate. Mosey came from the. Uh, <clears throat> When the flying spaghetti monster spoke to Mosey, threw a burnt marshmallow, commanded Mosey to uh, get all the short order cooks. But when Mosey returned to the diner, Phil refused, blah, blah, blah. Um, my question is, what would the Makita Daddy sound like? Thankful we may never know. Can only assume that it's hella annoying. What would a Shakespearean dad joke sound like? So it's just Reddit. So okay. it's not a real song. Okay. Hey everyone, just wanted to take a second to let you know about our official podcast store at thecomcast.com. Go check it out today, everybody. We've got everything you can think of from t-shirts, hoodies, stickers, organic tote bags, and even drinkware like coffee mugs and craft beer glasses. Go check it out today at thecomcast.com. Now let's get back into the episode. Back to the book. Hmm. The eight, I'd really rather you didn't. Pirate Mosey really wanted that pirate ship, and putting all labor in uh, in wait issues aside, he declared his band to now be pirates, and he led the pirates up to the top of Mount Salsa, where he thought there might be a good chance of finding the pirate ship he'd been searching for all these years. What? But, 
but led a people up a, a mountain of salsa to no, find a ship. Up to the top of Mount Salsa instead of Sinai. Oh, to find a ship. On a mountain. Yeah. Okay. But they didn't find the ship. Obviously. And the people now uh, didn't know how to act like pirates after all. They they were really like just a bunch of short order cooks and the FSM came down and declared that they'd better clean up their act because real pirates belonged on the open seas, not on a mountain. And Pirate Mosey was embarrassed and wouldn't come down from the mountain even though the rest of his band took the FSM's advice and went down into the town at the bottom of Mount Salsa to wait for their captain. Finally, the FSM got completely fed up and he visited Mosey on the mountaintop and told him where to find the sea. And after admitting that it had had been a long haul since creation and that maybe... Maybe he'd even rethink some of his decisions if he had to do it all over again. He gave Pirate Mosey some advice, which came in the form of ten stone tablets. Oh, God. These tablets Mosey called Commandments, since he had a healthy sense of drama. Although the short order cooks grew confused and misnamed them them the condiments, (laughs) but because of the phrasing, the FSM refers... To them as the, I'd really rather you didn't. Unfortunately, Mosey dropped two of them on the way down the mountain, which partly accounts for Pastafarian's flimsy moral standards, but the rest can be read as follows. Yeah. So there's only eight of them listed because he dropped two of them. Yeah, because he couldn't come up with fucking ten. Yep. <laughs> What's his name? Robert Peterson? Robert Pattinson? No. The guy who wrote the book. Oh, Bobby Henderson. Yeah, Bobby Henderson. Same Ro- Robert Peterson. <laughs> Something stupid. <laughs> the eight I'd rather you didn't. Here we go. Number one. Hold on. Number one. Farting on the podcast. Yeah. Number one. I'd rather you didn't act like a sanctimonious, holier than thou act. Holier. Oh, holier. <laughs> I'd rather, all holly and shit. I'd rather you didn't act like a sanctimonious, holier-than-thou ass when describing my noodly goodness. If some people don't believe in me, that's okay. Really, I'm not that vain. Besides, this isn't about them, so don't change the subject. Number two. I'd really rather you didn't use my existence as a means to oppress, subjugate, punish, uh, eviscerate, and or, you know, be mean to others. I don't require... <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> I don't require sacrifices and purity. And I don't require sacrifices and purity is for drinking water, not people. Number three. I'd really rather you didn't judge people for the way they look or how they dress or the way they talk. Or, well, just play nice, okay? Oh, And get this in your thick heads. Woman equals person. Man equals person. Samey, samey. Samey, samey. One is not better than the other. Unless we're talking about fashion. And I'm sorry, but I gave that to women and some guys who know the difference between teal and fuchsia. Uh, Yeah, but at least we got pockets in our jeans. (laughs) Uh, Like uh, useful pockets. They have pockets. Useful pockets. Yeah. Number four, I'd really rather you didn't indulge in conduct that offends yourself or your willing 
consenting partner of legal age and mental maturity. Don't be a pedophile. That's good. As for anyone who might object, <laughs> as for anyone who might object, I think the expression is "go fuck yourself." <laughs> Unless they find that offensive, in which case they can turn off the TV for once and go for a walk for a change. Number five, I'd really rather you didn't challenge the big toad. Or wait, sorry, I really, I really rather you didn't challenge the bigoted. Miss misogynist hateful misogynist yeah that misogynist <laughs> they used some big words for me everybody I'm used to riffing off of stupid shit that Ryan says <clears throat> misogynist hateful ideas of others on an empty stomach eat then go after that bitch <laughs> what I guess I missed that one where the fuck did that I'd come really from? rather you didn't challenge the bigoted misogynist, hateful ideas of others on an empty stomach. Eat, then go after that bitch. Ah, gotcha. So eat before uh, you go fight evil. Good advice. Good advice. Yep. Gotta get that meal before you go work out. That's right. Number six. Carbo load. I'd really rather you didn't build multi-million dollar churches slash temples slash mosques slash shrines to my noodly goodness when the money could be better spent. Uh, take your pick. Ending poverty, curing diseases, living in peace, loving with passion, and lowering the cost of cable. One of the two things that I have agreed with in this whole entire fucking book. Yeah. I agree with that one and the fucking eating before you fucking beat somebody's ass. I might be a complex carbohydrate omniscient being, but I enjoy the simple things in life. I ought to know I am the creator. Number seven. I'd really rather you didn't go around telling people I talk to you. You're not that interesting. I like that one, too. <laughs> Get over yourself. Oh, God, I like that one, and too. And I told you to love your fellow man. Can't you take a hint? Mind your own fucking business. I don't want to hear about it. In the words it. of Cheyenne's mom, shut the hell up, my own damn business. God damn it. Number don't ever that shit. Yep. Shut no. the fuck up. Number eight. I'd really rather you didn't do unto others as you would have uh, them do unto you if you are into um, stuff that uses a lot of leather lubricant, <laughs> Las Vegas. If the other person is into it, however, pursuant to number four, which is I'd really rather you not indulge in, in conduct that offends yourself or that you're willing. Um, so he's not a BDSM fan. Yeah. So then have at it. Take pictures, and for the love of Mike, wear a condom. Honestly, it's a piece of rubber. If I didn't want it to feel good when you did it, I would have added spikes or something. <laughs> Raw men. <sighs> at what time are we at? Starting another chapter. 45. 45? Okay. We will just go ahead and pursue forward, and we'll get to a good stopping point. <clears throat> Next chapter, A History of Heretics. This is where it goes into more history shit. Oh. <clears throat> oh, the like the cave paintings and shit? Oh yeah. Okay, I'm looking forward to that. We're going we're getting into like Greece. That middle part like that. that middle part was fucked up. We're getting into like Greek times. Okay. I might like Everyone that. knows that pirates are badasses, but history is also full of non possifarians who dare to rock the boat, challenging the limits of religious and scientific dogma alike. With this in mind, we offer this rundown of heretics through time. Their poor lives illustrate just how hard a world without FSMism can be. Aristotle, New Age philosopher. 
Aristotle was born in northern Greece a really long time ago. He was the son of a wealthy and influential doctor and studied under Plato. Side note, today Plato is nearly forgotten. His beliefs include the notion that people who govern should be intelligent, rational, self-controlled, and in love with wisdom, an idea that has long been discredited. Who was also the son of a wealthy, influential doctor. Thus began the Greek tradition, a key for forebear to the contemporary Western thought, which holds the wealthy and the influential which holds that the wealthy and influential shall grow even more wealthy and influential, while the poor and influential grow poor and increasingly lose their fluent. Side note, lose translation from the original Greek. <laughs> Because Aristotle dared to disagree with the teachings of Plato, he was not appointed head of the academy when Plato died. Angered by this snub, Aristotle took a tutoring job with a young Alexander the Great, whom he encouraged to follow his dream and rapping, pillaging, and... Oh. oh. It's raping and pillaging. It's not, raping. Not rapping and pillaging. There's some no, rapping-ass goblins up in here. I thought there was two Ps. Oh. <clears throat> Follow his dream of raping, pillaging, and eventually taking over the world. After that, Aristotle retired to his writings. It is said that Aristotle wrote over 150 treaties, um, although that, that is an awful lot of treaties, they can be summarized as follows. Everything in our world is composed of potential matter and reality form, like an uncarved block of marble we have the potential to sculpt our lives and make them into whatever reality we wish. Today, this line of thought is referred to as freaky new age shit. And contemporary scholars agree that if Aristotle were alive today, he would definitely be a fixture on Oprah. <laughs> Aristotle has been a fan favorite of all the great thinkers throughout time. Not only was he a great philosopher, but he, was also, he also developed a systematic classification of animals which made him quite the Renaissance man. And it should be noted that his teachings experienced a real Renaissance during the Renaissance. But there were dark clouds ahead for his Renaissance supporters. For although he talked a lot about God, he also declared that the universe was eternal, a belief that caused a lot of trouble about a thousand years after he died, when the Catholic Church finally started paying attention to all the Aristotle hype. <laughs> Next chapter, Leonardo da Vinci. Mm. <laughs> Had to uh, wet my whistle there. <clears throat> Leonardo da Vinci. Architect, musician, uh, anatomist, number one New York Times best-selling author, inventor, vegan, engineer, homosexual, sculptor, painter, and minor league stickball prodigy. <laughs> Known as the don't forget ping pong expert. Known as don't forget playing could easily play expert level on Guitar Hero. <laughs> yeah. Known as the original Renaissance man, Leonardo da Vinci came from humble origins. His father was a notary and his mother was a local peasant woman. Leonardo was raised on the hard streets of Florence, where he grew up quickly learning to draw, paint, sculpt, and invent normal. Uh, an invent before normal kids his age had ever seen a gun. He was also a closeted homosexual. Side note, right. da, da Vinci invented the closet. 
Da Vinci began keeping journals early in life. He wrote them in code, but his co-writer Dan Brown later translated much of what was inside. Though Da Vinci's journals, as well as surviving records kept by Florence's officers of the night, an anti-sodomy agency of the time, we have learned that Da Vinci enjoyed the company of adolescent boys and and that he liked them young. Liked them young? Liked them young. Mm. Side note, this was a real group. We are not shitting you. The, huh. the officers of the night, an anti-sodomy agency of the time. <clears throat> cool. He also became a vegan. Side note, essentially a hardcore vegetarian who doesn't even who doesn't even eat milk or eggs and can't stop talking about it. Having determined that milk producing udders are homogenous to a woman's breasts, which of course he despised, but enough about his sexual preferences. Throughout Da Vinci's life, he managed to invent everything that's ever been used in a war. These include the helicopter, the hang glider, the tank, the machine gun, the cluster bomb, the robot, and the submarine. <laughs> the robot. <laughs> Later, he went on to invent the, uh, the single-span bridge, the video game Halo, and the gate that swings both ways. The gate that swings both ways. The Renaissance uh, humanists <laughs> saw no distinction between science and the arts, and so Da Vinci didn't limit his brilliant imagination to just inventing things. Side note. By contrast, today's scientists are only interested in science, Star Wars, and video games. Not Da Vinci. He was interested in the gate that swings both ways and young boys. I believe we call that a saloon door. True. That would be cool. He invented, he invented the double hinge. Yep. He also painted such famous masterpieces as the Adoration of the Magi, the Mona Lisa, and the Last Supper. He studied anatomy, designed festivals, sculpted, and wrote music. He even arranged it so that his shit didn't stink. In short, he was awesome. We will not cover Da Vinci's problems with the Catholic Church, since everybody has already read The Da Vinci Code. Side <laughs> note by Dan Brown, Doubleday, 2003. Giordano Bruno deserved what he got. Originally born with the name uh, Filippo in 1548, Giordano Bruno took his new name in 1565 when he became a, Domin uh, a Dominican friar at the monastery of St. Dominic uh, Domenico. I didn't want to mess that up. The monastery of St. Domenico near Naples. Eventually, he was ordained a priest which is slightly ironic considering what the church eventually did to him. But more on that later. Disliked by all who encountered him, Bruno became an avid reader of books. He read Plato, Copernicus, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Averroes, uh, Dunes Scotus, Marcillo Ficino, uh, Nicholas of Cusa, Nick Hornsby, and Isaac Asmo. It was a. It was. <clears throat> it is a well-known fact that those who read books often develop some funny ideas, and history has shown this to be especially true of people from the olden days. Bruno became particularly influenced by his reading of Copernicus and Plato so much that he couldn't stop talking about them. In 1576, the Inquisition put Bruno 
on their 10 most wanted list. He escaped to Geneva, but this wasn't the last time the Inquisition would come calling. For a short period, Bruno joined the Calvinists, but he was unwilling to abide by their strict no-smiling policy. In 1579, he traveled to Toulouse, France, where for a while he enjoyed the protection of powerful French patrons. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was during this period that he completed the majority of his writing, including Di l'Infinito Universo e Mondi, in which he, I don't know how I got that right, in which he argued that the stars were the same as our sun, that the universe was infinite, and that all universes were inhabited by intellectual beings, establishing Bruno as the first ever sci-fi geek. While still in France, Bruno gained fame for his prestigious memory, although his ability to retain information might have been a uh, direct result of his in uh, intensive reading habits. He really should have put down the books at this point and slipped into dispassionate ennui uh, like the rest. Ennui? Like the rest of the French. Instead, Bruno decided to go to England. In 1583, he sought a position at Oxford, but the people there judged him to be a know-it-all and Bruno was turned away. After petitioning to teach at a few other English schools, he came to learn the harsh reality of the saying, you only have one chance to make a good first impression. For the next couple of years, it is believed that Bruno spied against Catholics in England, posing as a Catholic priest. He um, perpetually took confessions from Catholics then supported those confessions to English spymasters who saw it that the Catholics were put to death under the persecu uh, persecutory laws at the time. Uh, even if Bruno wasn't a heretic, he most surely had proven himself to be a major asshole by this point and well-deserved of a good burning. In 1589, Bruno returned to Paris Within a year, he had pissed off the uh, Parisians, or, or Parisians, and he moved to Germany, where his reputation had preceded him. By 1588, he was on his way to Prague, and it was growing clear that Bruno was running out of countries. Faced with the option of fleeing to Siberia or going back to Italy, Bruno stupidly accepted a brief teaching position at, a Padua, at Padua in 1591. Side note, by this point, Siberia was the only place that hadn't heard of him. Unfortunately for him, the uh, professorship he sought there went to Galileo, Galilee, so he journeyed to Venice where he pissed off one last person who then denounced him to the Inquisition. Side note, though probably fortunate for everyone else. So why is he talking about this stuff? Because he still had another half of a book to fill? Maybe he's just talking about he's just talking about people. I know, and that's where that's where it gets like uninteresting, and like it gets uninteresting, and then you come back to it, and then it gets uninteresting, then you come back to it. We just read like the first third, like thirty minutes of just utter, just absolutely pretty hilarious nonsense, and then we're getting into just like just long like Giordano Bruno one, so a little just long and drawn out. We're almost done with it though. Bruno was arrested on May 22nd, 1592. It took six years before he stood trial in Rome, and when the Inquisitor, uh, Cardinal Robert Bellamarine, 
asked him if he still stood by his beliefs. Bruno is believed to have replied, does the Pope wear a funny hat? He sure the fuck does. And so on February 17, 1600, a nail was driven through his tongue. Bruno was tied to a stake and he was burned as a heretic. If only he kept his mouth shut. A tough lesson for sure. Burn him. The next one is Charles Darwin. Mm. Need another drink. Evolution's creepy little cook. In June 1837, more than 20 years before Charles Darwin published his famous, if highly flawed, treatise on national selection entitled On the Origin of Species, the young biologist self-published a lesser-known work, one that turned out to be his first stab at reconciling his beliefs in science and religion. That book was On the Origin of Spaghetti Sauce. Hmm. The Early Years Probably mildly retarded, Darwin grew up Jesus in. Christ. Darwin grew up. I tried to blow past it. Probably mildly retarded. Darwin grew up in Shrewsbury, England, the fifth of six children. He was the son of Robert Darwin, a well-to-do doctor, and Susanna Darwin, who was rumored to be a virtual magician in the kitchen. <laughs> Throughout Darwin's life, his family dichotomy would tear at the very fabric of his being as pressure to excel in the natural sciences collided with his more homey desire to transmogrify the English culinary experience, a mission at which he ultimately failed. Darwin entered Edinburgh University in 1825 and was immediately astonished to discover that the university did not offer courses in the culinary arts. Tricked by his father, who studied medicine, the dejected young Darwin resorted to cooking uh, sumptuous dinners for himself in his boarding house. In his second year, he joined several student naturalist so- uh, societies, and for a short time, he was free to explore the shores of the Firth of Forth, collecting the crustaceans for various culinary wonders, like linguine with clam sauce and penne with striped zebra mussels. Little did his fellow students realize that this creepy little cook, side note, as quoted in Phineas P. Cornflower's autobiography, (laughs) A. I Knew Darwin's Sauces, would one day use these experiences as a springboard for one of the greatest revolutions in Western contemporary thought. While still at Edinburgh, Darwin produced his first scientific paper, presented in the Plinian Society, it explained that the the black spores found in oyster shells were the eggs of the common skate leech. Darwin shrewdly concluded that these spores were left by the flying spaghetti monster as a sign that even the lowliest of God's creatures could band together for a common cause. Side note, in this case, oysters served as babysitters for skate leeches' eggs so that adult skate leeches would be free to pursue their insatiable urge to drain the lifeblood from skates. He was soundly laughed out of the society's chambers, and shortly thereafter his father arranged to have him transfer from Edinburgh to Cambridge. Once he got to Cambridge, Darwin's father threatened to remove young Charles's colander and other kitchen utensils if he did not bear down and fully commit himself to his studies as a physician. By the young but the young son was adamant that he would follow his dream of culinary excellence. 
When he finally threatened his father with the prospect of abandoning the family and moving to France, the two Darwins arranged a secretive meeting in Paris's St. Solspice Church. Side note, The Da Vinci Code, Doubleday Books, 2003. Where it was determined that the young Darwin would pursue studies in theology. This seemed as a sensible compromise as clergymen uh, were well paid as, and as most English naturalists uh, were cur- clergymen. Charles is widely believed to have told his father at the time, if I cannot be allowed to explore the wonders of God's cookery, then let me at least explore the wonders of his creation. Charles Darwin applied himself at Cambridge, but was a C-minus student at best. In the summer after the first year at Cambridge, he was embarrassed by his poor showing and sought any means possible to avoid going home during the break. He read a bunch of pamphlets and ultimately decided to take a Mediterranean cooking cruise, where he was promised the opportunity to explore and sample the various foods of Greece and southern Italy. But the voyage was ill-fated. Darwin suffered from food poisoning and seasickness and ultimately... He went home early. The only record of these sad days exists in a poorly penned and unpublished journal that he titled The Voyage of the Meatball. This is like a decently written history book with little stupid side notes little thrown in. pieces of trash thrown yeah. in. Yeah. And I think that's the point. I feel like if you if you can get past the boredom of reading this book... You might be okay. Oh, no. <laughs> That's how you get converted. You make it pass. We've got a few pages left, and then we'll go ahead and end the episode there. Thank fucking God. <laughs> Jesus. The first half was pretty funny. Yeah. <clears throat> Last half is fucking putting me to sleep. The Voyage of the Beagle. The Voyage of the Meatball nearly destroyed Darwin. He limped through his last year at studies and following, following graduation did what any man armed with a Cambridge degree, would do. He took a five-year vacation to the Galapagos Islands. Excuse me. Suffering from the nervous exhaustion and having lost all faith in humanity, Darwin was now determined to befriend as many of of the world's animals as possible. It was abroad, or it was aboard the HMS Beagle that the life, that life began to turn around him. In a freak gale off the coast of Tierra del Fuego, all of Darwin's cookbooks were washed aboard, overboard, bored and suffering from uh, severe skin rashes. Young Charles picked up a book that would set his life on a new course. That book was called Charles Lyell's Principle of Geology, which uh, posited the geological features are the outcome of gradual processes that take place over eons of time. Something clicked in Darwin's head, and in that moment of clarity, he realized that a slow-cooked sauce would be exponentially more delicious than one that was merely heated from a can. Something that can, something that had never been before occurred to an Englishman. From this realization, he gleaned some other ideas related to evolution, but he was really most excited about the sauce revelation. Within days, the Beagle's cooks. Uh, the Beagle's cook was thrown overboard and Charles Darwin took over the ship's mess. There were mussels galore in South America and Darwin thrived. Side note, sadly, many of them were fossilized. On October 2nd, 1836, he returned to England as a minor celebrity, having discovered fossils, finches, 
tortoises, mockingbirds, and modern cooking. His book, The Voyage of the Beagle, side note, having a similar structure and tone to The Voyage of the Meatball, was a hit. And he was invited to dinner parties throughout London where he cooked and talked throughout many a night. Some of the proceeds from the Beagle book went towards self-publishing on the origin of spaghetti sauce in which Darwin put forth his theory of slow-cooked sauce and perfectly boiled noodles as a divine representation of the flying spaghetti monster. Sadly, the book never took off. Still, Darwin had his day job, which consisted of little more than jotting down everything he noticed. To that effect, and prompted by the facilitating... Or sorry, yeah, uh, and to that effect, and prompted by the fascinating structural similarities between earthworms and various forms of pasta, he began studying worms. Side note, Darwin loved worms, describing them on several occasions as noodly, and so without appendages as to be appendages themselves. It is quite possible that this is the point where Charles Darwin finally descended into full-blown dementia. We will, however, never know the full truth because Thomas Huxley, who had developed an unhealthy fascination for the fullness and length of Darwin's beard, took it upon himself to follow Darwin around in the attempt to defend his mindless ramblings about worms. It was Huxley who convinced Darwin to stop arguing that humans were descended from worms or, in his image, side note, his refers to the flying spaghetti monster, of course, as Darwin was often quoted as saying, Huxley convinced his friend to claim that the lines of descent passed instead from monkeys, which he pointed out exact, actually had appendages and bore an uncanny resemblance to certain people, including Darwin, who became known as Monkey Man. <laughs> <laughs> Monkey Man! It reminds me of Hey Arnold. You remember Monkey yeah. Man? Monkey Man! <laughs> <clears throat> Once Darwin made the intellectual jump from worms to monkeys, his theory really took off. He was invited to many official scientific meetings where he was uh, lauded by geniuses, savants, and even scientists and philosophers. To this day, no one really knows why. <clears throat> the End of His Life in 1842, embarrassed by his fame and morally disappointed by his inability to realize his life's ambition of being a professional chef, Darwin retreated to Downhouse in the London borough of Bromley to write that damned egghead book, as he put it. He published On the Origin of Species in 1859, which was mostly about worms and the animals he'd befriended while vacationing in the Galapagos. Rendering it completely unreadable, later he wrote, the Desert of Man, which Huxley changed to The Descent of Man without Darwin noticing. <laughs> Destitute and nearly forgotten, Charles Darwin died in Down, Kent, England on April 19, 1882. His beard was eight feet long at the time. Side note, Guinness Book of World Records. You want to end it there? We've got two pages left. Might as well read it. Okay. Get it over with. <clears throat> the, there's only two more heretics, everybody. John Scopes, the ACLU's little monkey. 
On May 25, 1925, John T. Scopes was charged with violating Tennessee's Butler Act, which prohibited the teaching of evolution in Tennessee schools. Side note, see Stanley Kramer's stunning five-part documentary, Inherit the Wind. Scopes was eventually found guilty and given the choice of paying a $100 fine or being pummeled with rotten fish and burned at the stake. After much reflection, he chose to pay the fine. Scopes later admitted to the reporter to a reporter, William K. Hutchinson, that he had never actually taught his class about evolution, choosing instead to skip the lesson altogether. In fact, his most famous quote is the Clintonesque, I didn't violate the law. But if Scopes didn't teach evolution, how did this trial come about? As usual, the ACLU was behind it. It turns out that the lawyers from the ACLU had offered a, a finance offered to finance a test case challenging the constitutionally uh, constitutionality of the Butler Act. Scubs became their unwilling monkey and the lawyers started pouring into Tennessee by the hundreds. The defense team included Clarence Darrow, Dudley Field Malone, John Neal, Arthur Garfield Hayes, and Frank McElwee, among others. The prosecution included Tom Stewart, Herbert Hicks, Wallace Haggard, Ben and Jay, Gordon McKenzie, uh, William Jennings, Brian, uh, who was, side note, who was still trying to make up for his embarrassing cross of gold speech in which he argued that pirates had used their treasure to forge the first Christian cross. Um, <laughs> and William Jennings, Brian Jr., before the trial even started, the ACLU had met his objective of employing as many lawyers as possible, and the real tragedy of the Scopes Monkey trial is not that it helped to promote the teaching of evolution, but that but that it was an early model for our highly uh, litig litigious litigious society. After the trial, Scopes attended the University of Chicago, where he earned a master's in geology. He then went on to work for the oil industry, where in 1932, he met a young oil executive named Dick Cheney, who, who disclosed that sco uh, two scopes that he would one day take over the world. That he did. Dolly the sheep. She was a whore. Here we go. This is the best one. <laughs> this is my favorite. Codenamed 6LL3. This ewe was the last mammal ever to have been successfully cloned from an adult sale. Cell. Sale. Cell. Cell. Produced at the Roslyn Institute in Scotland, 6LL3, or Dolly, side note, named for Dolly Parton, seriously, as she was named by the stockman who helped her with her birth, was cloned by the technique of... Fat parrotids. <laughs> was cloned by the technique of somatic cell nuclear transfer using a cell from an adult sheep's mammary, side note, tit. Scientists <laughs> placed a cell in and denucleated ovum <clears throat> and waited for two cells to fuse. Eventually, the fused cells developed into an embryo, and on July 5th, 1996, Dolly was born. That sheep absolutely loved to fuck, said Seamus, or sorry, Seamus, McCracken, a top researcher, other sheep, stockmen, even the sheepdog, she was insatiable. Scientists suspect that Dolly's libido was a result of her sense that 
She only had so much time on this earth, and indeed she did suffer from shortened telomeres in her cells, which may have been passed on by her parents. Since Dolly's mother was six years old when the genetic material was taken from her, scientists speculate that in genetic terms, Dolly was six years old when she was born. Hmm. She had arthritis by the age of five, lung disease by the age of six, and had a bad case of gonorrhea pretty much throughout. What the fuck? Hard facts for Dolly. And that is a pretty good stopping point. Thank God. We will continue in two... We will continue on the Gospel of the Flying Spaghetti Monster Part 4 at Propaganda. Probably still got two more readings left. All right, everybody. That is at at least at least least two, maybe even two and a half, three. All right, everybody. That is the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for downloading. Hopefully, you you enjoyed it. Um, I know that last a little bit kind of got a little boring, but I I hope you're having fun. Anyway. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Thanks for hanging in there. If you quit halfway through, I don't fucking blame you. Um, Probably not going to get a lot of downloads on this episode, but I don't give a shit. Oh, Um, don't worry about that. So, thanks, everybody. Uh, Of course, we couldn't do this fucking ridiculous show without you. Uh, We appreciate you so much. Uh, If you want to support us, go uh, give us a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. If you want to support us even farther... Uh, go check out the website, thecomcast.com. Uh, go buy some shit from us. We would greatly appreciate it. Um, and as always, wash your hands and wash your motherfucking asses. Let's get out of here. Ditto what Ryan said. We don't count downloads. We count reviews. Love you all so much. Hope you enjoy the episode. Go and get some Count Shocula from Green Room Brewing. And don't forget to check out the Comcast Facebook page where you can get all links to all the books and brews that we month. review. Do you have a new book? Do what? It's a new month too. Do you have a new book? I do have a new book. Um, give me one second. Gospel of the Flying Spaghetti Monster. Duh. No, that was already a book of the month. Actually, he's a he's a flying fucking meatball with spaghetti. And what does he eat? Meatballs with spaghetti. Duh. Duh. Yeah. yeah. Didn't you know that? Uh, let's see. Let me, sorry. I just finished it. I'm pulling it up now. Okay, so uh, the new book, thanks for bringing that up. I know you hate the book of the month. So the new book of the month. Oh, I prefer it now over that fucking pile of shit. (laughs) The new book of the month for May is going to be called The Vine Witch by Luann G. Smith. The Vine Witch, I I actually downloaded all... I actually bought all three in this book series. The Vine Witch is a fiction book set in uh, France. A Vine Witch, essentially a, a a witch or a magician, something like that, that is made... That it, that is, the purpose is to make wine, make wine better. Every vineyard has one. But there's different witches and different wizards and magicians that are good at other stuff. Some are good at baking. Some are all doing all different kinds of things. Go check this out. It follows a young, a young vine, witch who makes wine on her. Uh, basically she is, um, she's arrested for committing a crime. She didn't commit. Uh, it's, it's a very, very, very good fictional book, especially if you like witches and magic and stuff like that and wine. 
I highly recommend it. Go check out the wine, the, the Vine Witch, and the other two books in the series. I'm currently on the second book, which is called The Glamorous, which continues the story on after the first book. So go check that out today. I believe you can get it on Goodreads or Kindle. I think it's $2.99 right now. So it's a very cheap book. It's very I, I recommend it, especially if you like that kind of fictional um, storytelling. Go check that out. That is the book of May. I want to be a pie witch. A pie witch? There is witches that do bakery stuff. It's pretty cool. I mean, I'd technically be a wizard. No, it's technically witch. No, because I'm a boy. Uh, there are male witches. It's the wizards. According to the book. The wizards, Harry. <laughs> okay. So... Go and get some Count Chocula from Greenwood Brewing in Jacksonville, Florida. They are on the beach. Go check them out. Highly recommend. Love the beer. And remember, when life gets hard. Jesus life... Christ, just fucking end the show. I'm being suspenseful like the book. You don't have to be suspenseful. Just fucking end it. When life gets hard and life gets you down, you drink a good beer, read a good book, start a new religion, and you milk that pig, ladies and gentlemen. Peace. Peace. Oh,